You know, one of the things that I appreciate among many things about our elders is the intentionality with which they are trying to minister to and to reach out to folks all across the, the spectrum of our congregational life. I think about what was provided this weekend. We mentioned this morning that we're not aware of anyone else who is providing the kind of guidance and help and encouragement to those who have suffered the loss of a mate uh, besides our, our brother Dean Miller who did a fantastic job all weekend. Um, but that is a recognition of an important segment of this congregation, what they mean to us, what they mean to God. And we were encouraged to reach out to them and to minister to them even better to try to help them to know how much we love them, even though they're alone in the sense that they don't have their mate on this earth, that they're not alone because they have us as a church family. I also think about, as I saw Matthew, it's good to see him up here leading singing. It's a reminder, this is an exciting time of the year. I saw the vision group for uh, the college ministry and young adult ministry out there uh, speaking and talking about the plans they have for this semester and all that's been the chatter that's going on. There's a completely different demographic, and yet there's a recognition of how important they are. I appreciate what Nat said about the NPR bulletin board. So often we don't change certain things on the, the announcement sheet. You're going to be in for a surprise. What you see on the NPR bulletin board, it's not what Nat said was there. So if you want to know more about that, go over and you'll see another segment of this congregation that uh, we are really trying to focus on and, and let, letting know how much they mean to us. Uh, that's so important as we think about what God has us here to be, that we're here for one another. And one of the great takeaways from this weekend was that we focus on that very thing. I appreciate Daryl's prayer this morning in which he talked about the idea of who we are in this world. You know, there's a sense in which if people look at us, they're not going to be able to tell a difference between us and anybody else, and that's okay. There's a sense in which there's a distinction about all of us who are in this assembly tonight and all who share, as we often say, like precious faith. They say that there are a number of people in our world that are displaced from their home. And an exile, by definition, is one who is outside of their country, either by choice or by force. And when they begin to do the statistical breakdown of that, it appears that there is a new group, a largest group in the world, who are exiled from their homeland, and that's the Ukrainians. Since war broke out in the spring, and as it has continued on, we have found 15 million Ukrainians who have been forced from their home because of that war with Russia that's been brought to them. Displaced the Syrians. For years there's been a conflict going on in Syria and 12 million plus Syrians are having, have had to leave their home because of the war-torn effects of where they are. In fact, if you take it all together, there are 100 million people who are forcibly relocated and displaced from their homes. It's hard for us to get our minds around that number except to understand that that equates to 20 people every minute who are forced to leave their home and go somewhere else. Another way to look at that is that just over one, just over one in 113 people on this earth are in exile. And I don't mean to disparage or minimize their suffering or their sacrifice at all, but I suggest to you that they are not the only exiles in this world. 
Peter talks about some who make up that group. And we, if we understand ourselves properly, also make up that group. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I urge you as uh, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. And with that particular address, calling them those two things, he's making a point. An alien is a person who is in a place not their own. And a stranger is somebody who is living in a strange or foreign place. And with these two particular ideas or synonyms, he is pointing out the idea that we are distinct and different from this world. If you've ever been to Austin, Texas, they have a motto that they're very proud of. And what they say is, you'll find it at the airport and all around, keep Austin weird. Now, the Christian's motto is not a spiritual sense of that. We're not trying to say keep Christians weird, though the world may think that about us. We're not trying to go out of our way to dress weird and to act weird and to talk weird. But there's going to be something about us that's going to be distinct and it's going to stand out. It's the idea that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the concept that Jesus, at the very beginning of teaching us who a disciple and a follower of him is, he says, you're like salt that is savor for this world. You're like light that is guiding this misguided world. You're going to be different. When we consider this idea of the distinction that makes us up, we think about what happens in Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, you have really a synopsis, a kind of a, a preview of all else that's going to happen after this in the book of Daniel, at least the first part of the book of Daniel. You have these individuals, these exiles, and they are, are forced from their place of, of living, Jerusalem and Judah, and they are made to go to this far-off place, Babylon. And there are three Old Testament books that give for us the events that take place in the 70 years that they're in Babylonian captivity. That's the book of Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel. But I don't suppose it's a stretch of the imagination to say that we know a lot more about Daniel than we do those other two books. And what happens in Daniel chapter 1 is that they have to go to a place in which they've got to learn a new language. They've got to learn a new culture. We come to understand that they're in a place where they're going to receive a different education. Their names are going to be changed. They're going into a culture that is more powerful than them, that has more money than them, and has different gods than them. And so it's no stretch for us to say that they found themselves in this strange and foreign place. And in that foreign place, they found themselves like exiles who are wandering. And as you consider Babylon, it is not a surprise, and we'll say more about this at the end of the lesson, that there is so much for us to learn about what happened in Babylon by application of what it's like to be in our world today. When we think about the distinction and the difference in our world from the world in which we live, there have been those who have drawn that parallel in our world. There's a man by the name of David Kinneman who is the president of Barna Research Group. And he paints the picture of what it's like to have faith in, in exile. And he says, the world is such that our young people find themselves uh, like Daniel in a place that is far different from the culture, different from the church culture and the homes in which young Christians often find themselves. 
And as he describes what's a part of that, he says so often it's easy for our technology to outdistance our theology. And the things that we access through our devices, we so more often access than we do what's written in the Word of God. And so often what happens is, is that we may turn to those who are our, our, our peers or to social media more than we do to older adults and to traditions and institutions. And so the challenge is great. He points out especially to those who are young adults trying to live in this world how much a struggle it is to try to be faithful in a foreign land and how tough that is when the foreign land is the land in which you actually live, maybe even your native culture. But you see, as a distinct minority, as God's people are always going to be, we're not just charged with trying to survive in Babylon. We're trying to influence. We're trying to help. We're trying to change our Babylon. I believe that there are some principles from Daniel chapter 1 that can help us to be faithful in this spiritually foreign land, that can help us to know what to do when we find ourselves as exiles in a spiritual Babylon. The first thing that we have got to do if we're going to survive our spiritual Babylon, if we're going to be faithful in this foreign land, is we must be resolved. If you look on down in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, there's an edict or a command that's made by the eunuch who is over all of these captives who have come to Babylon. And as he is instructing them and helping them and trying to prepare them, one of the things he does is, is he says, I want you to be able to eat the food and to drink the wine which Nebuchadnezzar the king does. And this is a favor that, it, at least in their minds, this is what they're trying to do, is to help them out. And Daniel and his friends, whom we know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're resolved that they are not going to do that. And this is something that doesn't make sense to the folks in Babylon. But no matter what, they are not going to do it because he says we'll be defiled if we do it. You know, folks like to try to look into this and say, how would they have been defiled if they had taken the king's food or had drinking the king's wine? And the text doesn't really tell us. It could have been that this would have been at odds with the dietary laws of the law of Moses. It might have been that the food that they had would have been improperly killed or cooked uh, or, or cleaned. It might have been that it was uh, items that had been offered to the Babylonian gods. And yet, even though those might be the case, why they couldn't do it was not as important as the fact that they could not and they would not do that. I don't know if we understand exactly how hard it would have been for them to stand up in the face of everybody going a different direction You know, situation ethics says that we will make our decisions about right and wrong depending on the circumstances. And we live in a culture that thinks that way. They're constantly trying to erase God's absolutes and the things that God has tied down in Scripture. There is a call to us to stand in the same spirit as Daniel and his friends and say that we're not going to do that. You know... There are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong and there are some things that require wisdom and courage from us. And and when we are, are faced with that, we have to ask ourselves, is this something that I'm able to do in the culture in which I live? Daniel could partake of the wisdom and the literature of his day because it helped him to serve God and men and it did not violate the principles of God. There are a lot of different things that we're called and asked to do. And we've got to ask ourselves through wisdom and prayer, is this going to help me to influence this Babylon in which I find myself? 
How is it going to affect my influence in trying to bring others to Christ? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Is it going to help me to be an ambassador, a representative of Jesus in my interactions today? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. And how will it influence how uh, good of an example I am with my friends and my family? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. And as I consider whether I do this, how will it impact new and weak Christians? The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 and verse 15 talks about food and not taking food which would hurt or destroy a brother for whom Jesus died. And we can take out the word food and put anything there. And we're, our resolve in those judgment matters is going to be based upon whether wisdom and prayer leads us to do that which is going to help those around us or will it hurt them. But there are some things that God has tied down. There are lines that he has placed in Scripture, and he doesn't want us to cross that. And when that's the case, we've got to stand up, even if it's difficult to do so. Daniel's going to find that later on in Daniel chapter 6, when faced with continuing to pray or to go to the lion's den. Being faithful in a foreign land, even when that place is the culture in which we live, if we're going to do that, we must be resolved. Another principle that we find in Daniel chapter 1 is that if we're going to do this, if we're going to be faithful in a foreign land, we must trust divine providence. I want you to notice in verse 9 and verse 10 that God is with them. It's a principle that you're going to find throughout Daniel chapter 1. Whereas the Babylonians were concerned, that the head of the eunuchs is concerned that if they had the water and the vegetables, it was going to make them unhealthy. And if it made uh, them lose their health, it might make him lose his head. And so he was really concerned about this. But they said, trust us, this is going to work out. And later on, they're going to find this to be the case, that of all the people that have been brought from another land to this land, folks from all kind of different backgrounds, that Daniel and his friends are going to flourish they're going to succeed. And those that see them are going to see that God is with them. Now God was with them in a different way. Gave them miraculous abilities to do the things that they did. But I think about how much God has been with us and folks can see the favor of God in our lives. It starts most fundamentally with the fact that we were born in the wealthiest nation in history. But beyond that... We have had access to God's plan of salvation and through that we know God's redeeming plan. That alone demonstrates the favor of God in our lives. And yet we live with a principle that we understand that God is continuing to be at work in our lives every day, that God works out those things in our lives for good as we trust him and we follow his lead, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We are convicted that God is at work in us to work in the will of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13, that God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. And so we trust that God is going to be with us as we live in this life, even against the tides of culture. Folks can see that divine favor. But a third principle we learn from Daniel chapter 1, as we see Daniel and his friends living faithfully in a foreign world, is that we must have faith that God is with us. I want you to see that Daniel and his friends drive that stake in the ground even before they know how things are going to turn out. And the reason was that they had an unwavering faith in God's ability to be with them. It was a trust 
that they would do what they could not see, knowing that the God they served could see. I want you to notice that we see their faith in their obedience. There were other gods, and the people around them were serving those gods, but they determined and they demonstrated that the God that they served was a different God. As Daniel says in front of Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 2 and verse 28, there is a God in heaven, and they pledged their obedience and their allegiance to him. But we also see their faith and their courage. They realized that there were folks all around them that were conforming to the gods of the Babylonians. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are put to the test, and as they are, they say our God is going to deliver us, but even if not, we realize that we're going to serve God. We're going to be faithful to him. And Daniel is delivered from the lion's den. And in Daniel 6, verse 26 and 27, uh, the king saw this pagan king, that they had a, an enduring God, a faithful God, a rescuing and a delivering God in heaven and on earth, none like him that rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. An uncommon courage will be demonstrated by a faith that God will be with us no matter how much our culture changes and moves away from God. We also see their faith and their discipline. I don't know about you. I had a steak for lunch today. I'm not sure the last time that you had a vegetarian day. How about 10 days of vegetarian eating? And yet here you have, with everybody eating a different diet, you have Daniel and his friends subscribing to this meal, this plan that God had given to them. And they had the discipline not just to do it, but to, to stick it out to the end. What an example that is for us. And we also see their confidence. Their faith was demonstrated in their confidence because what they were choosing made no sense whatsoever to the Babylonians. But it made perfect sense to them. That if God had outlined that for them, then it was the way that they needed to go. Here they are thinking and basing their life's decisions in a way that was far different from the culture in which they find themselves. And what is it the Apostle Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. I mentioned David Kinnaman in the introduction tonight. He wrote a book called Faith for Exiles that I referenced a while ago. And he talked about some statistics. Lifeway Research did a, a poll in which they found that 70% of young Christians, the year they leave home, attend services twice a month or less. And that young adults ages 23 through 30 attend services one time a month or less. And he gives some of the reasons why the folks that fall into that demographic make those decisions. They say it's because of the political and the social values of the folks at church so often what they see them saying on social media. Or sometimes they say it's a perceived hypocrisy. Sometimes it's their work that becomes more important. Sometimes it's college. Sometimes it's various other factors that are mentioned. Or they can become disconnected from the folks at church. But what was very interesting to me in his thesis, his idea was, how is it that there are young Christian adults who not only survive but they thrive in their spiritual, their digital, their virtual Babylon. What is it that makes it different for them? And it's interesting, some of the things that he said. He says that one of the things that was uh, instilled in them was to have a personal relationship with God. The church where they attended encouraged them 
to uh, connect with God and to see the importance of developing a personal relationship with Him. Another thing that those churches did was that they encouraged vocational discipleship. In other words, what does it look like to follow Jesus at work and, and in, at, at uh, school and on the ball field? Another thing that they said was that these young Christians were able to form uh, good, healthy, intergenerational relationships. That they were privy to older Christians who spent time investing in them, showing their interest and their care and developing a relationship with them. You see, when we find ourselves struggling in our faith, we need to realize that we as older Christians are demonstrating our faith, the depth of our trust as we live each and every day. And that we don't need to have that faith in isolation, that we need to make those in the generations that are after us, young adults, and, and those who are coming up, we've got to make them a part of the faith that we have. That means it's going to have to live in our lives. And then we pass it along. You know, the Great Depression was in full force when Herbert Hoover was president. Many have blamed him for the Great Depression. I'm not sure that's a completely accurate picture. But Herbert Hoover was addressing the American people at a time in which they were not only in the throes of the Great Depression, but were experiencing the greatest recession that this nation had ever experienced. And he said that the woes of the uh, economics in this country were not going to be solved by legislation, uh, legislative actions or executive orders. But the healing had to come from the sales of the economic body, of the producers and the consumers themselves. This is not a discouraging statement. It's, it's a fact. It's not a criticism or a complaint. It's an observation. Our culture finds itself in the greatest spiritual depression that any of us have ever seen. We're in the greatest spiritual recession. And that being the case, the solution is not merely going to be found in the orders and the actions of church leaders. It's the sales of the spiritual body of Christ and the question is, we choose whether we're producers or consumers. We, our faith must be more than simply studying uh, uh, God's word and being present, but making that faith live in our everyday lives. And as we do that, we can connect that to the faith of our young people. But then fourth, if we're going to live out faithful lives in a foreign land, we must cultivate wisdom and understanding. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 17 through verse 20, we find the wisdom and the understanding that Daniel and his friends had. And something that is interesting to me is that the individuals who demonstrated such superlative spiritual strength are identified as youths. And not only that, I want you to notice in verse 20 that when Nebuchadnezzar looked, he saw that they were ten times wiser than any of the others who were in the kingdom from other places. That's the powerful impact that we can have on our culture. But it happens through cultivating wisdom and understanding. And they received that wisdom and that understanding through the uh, help that God gave them. But God's given us that help. You know, Ephesians 4, 13 through 16 is a text that we often find ourselves referring to. And as we look at it, we find that what he encourages is that we're seeking growth. Verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, we're stopping the instability of being pulled around as we root our faith to God's word, speaking faithfully 
having a right attitude toward God in his word and toward people. And then we're also going to be serving individually. Verse 16 shows that we're going to find the part that we play and we're going to do all that we can to play that part. The idea is we're going to grow to be a mature man, that we're not going to be like children anymore. We're going to grow up. That's the import of that passage. You know, we have just started talking about something that we really are very excited about. It's the, the equipped workshop that's coming next uh, April 20th through 23rd. And the intention in that is to do more of what's been done, is to try to reach in a lot of different areas of our lives where we find ourselves. Ladies, you have specific matters that are relevant to your life. And having those who can come and to help you be equipped for your job and responsibility in the kingdom of God. Young people have so much good that can be done. So many ways in which you can serve and do as Daniel and his friends did even in those tender years of life. There are needs you have. There are phases through which you're going. That you need guidance and help and strength and encouragement in doing that. There are those who are leaders and who aspire to be leaders and there's a need to grow individually in the ways that God has blessed us to serve what can be done in those areas of life? For college students and young adults, there are things that you're facing in that part of life. There are going to be ways to try to equip those who either are preaching or are interested in preaching, those who are young, those who are old. We've got to equip ourselves. That's what Paul is saying, and that's why we've chosen that particular name for that. That's what Daniel and his friends were demonstrating. They were demonstrating their use of what they were given demonstrate that they were equipped. I suggest to you that this is something that's important in everything that we t attempt to do. I appreciate the idea that we have the Lads to Leaders program that's been going on for several years. I appreciate the fifth Sunday young men leading our worship services. I appreciate what's being done and has been done so fruitfully through Bible camp and through our various youth activities and through all that we do in all stages of life. But we ask ourselves as we look at all of those things, what are we doing to monitor that the investment that we think that we're making is producing the result that we want to have on the end of that? When it comes to what's taking place in the Bible classroom through the teaching that's done, what are we doing to make sure that what we are teaching is what's being learned and what we're doing to go into that teaching? As parents, what are we doing to monitor that we're making the spiritual needs of our home more important than any other facet of life? You see, we've got to cultivate wisdom and understanding. And that doesn't happen just by wishing and dreaming that it would happen. When our young people leave home, are they going to be prepared for their sociology and their biology professor? Are we going to understand the difference between New Testament Christianity and denominationalism? Are we going to have an appreciation for what it means to live out Christ in a culture that is far different from the one in which we find ourselves? You know, Alexandria, Egypt had the Royal Library and that library had between 400 and 700,000 scrolls that really had everything written down, everything from the beginning of written time until the time in which it was destroyed. And then in Nalanda, India, there was a, the first residential university. And, and, and there were 2,000 teachers. There were 10,000 students. 
It was a remarkable work until the Turks came in and destroyed it in the 12th century and it was never rebuilt. And then there was the so-called Amber Room that was from a previous time in the Germans before the Nazis took over. It was a room that was often called the Eighth Wonder of the World. And it was thought that it was even a magical place by some who were mystical in their thinking. But the Nazis destroyed it during World War II. None of those places did anybody think would ever be destroyed. Those institutions, those items. You know, those of us who are serving in the kingdom now, it's hard for us to think that we'll, we'll not always be serving. I wonder what it was like in the day that Paul and Peter lost their lives. What happened in the church? There's a comforting fact that's found for us in Scripture. There's a New Testament reflection on the Old Testament truth. In Daniel 2 and verse 44, the kingdom of God shall stand forever. In Hebrews 12 and verse 23, it shall never be shaken. But we have a responsibility for those generations that follow us to encourage them to cultivate wisdom and understanding. We want the generation to come to, go, uh, to do better and to do bigger things than we've done. And that happens when we encourage them to live faithful in a foreign land. But then the fifth thing that we see is that we must be in it for the long haul. A remarkable statement made at the end of Daniel chapter 1 has to do with the longevity of Daniel's time in Babylonian captivity. It seems pretty clear that Daniel was the, among the first that were taken away. He was in that first of three deportations out of Jerusalem and Judah into the land of Babylon. He probably went in 606 B.C. And he was there in Cyrus' first year. And the first year of King Cyrus was 539 B.C. And so he went into Babylon as a teenager at most. And he left when Babylon was destroyed and conquered in his 80s. And so Daniel spent his whole life in that foreign land in Babylon. But he was in it for the long haul. We see how... He continued his faithfulness. Those of us who are the leaders and the Bible class teachers and the deacons and those who are nurturing and growing young women as older women, what about those who are going to be the leaders in those roles tomorrow? As they enter into that long haul, as we can help them and guide them through their spiritual Babylon, they're looking to us. I don't know how long the evil and the sin of our society is going to prevail. It may be until our society here is no more. It may be until we pass from the scenes of this life. But 1 John 5 and verse 4 says, ultimately we're going to overcome, and we're going to overcome through our faith. You know, I think about Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They had to endure a literal Babylon. But I also think about how Peter and John will so frequently refer in their writings to Rome and the Roman Empire as a Babylon. I even think about how the word continues to be used today. You know, people, one of the definitions for Babylon is a place that is degenerate and a place that is immoral. I think all of us understand how well and aptly that describes the culture in which we find ourselves. But God has called us to be faithful in a foreign land, even though that land is a land we love, a land in which we have grown and, and feel such loyalty. But there is a culture within that culture, the prevailing culture, 
that is godless and moving farther away. God does not permit us to join in with that. You know, in the Wild West, we have that picture that has given us what we even refer to today. They would circle the wagons to keep enemies and the predators out. And so often that's the temptation and the tendency that we have as we think about how we're going to survive in the culture in which we find ourselves, what can happen is, is that we circle the wagons. We isolate ourselves. We keep ourselves from those in the greater culture. You know, it's a great thing that if your closest friends and your greatest associations are brothers and sisters in Christ... But it's a challenge to us to see that we cannot confine ourselves and limit ourselves to just those who are, as we often say, of like precious faith. We're not to conform and to be like this culture. But God has us here to be salt and light. To not just survive, but to impact and to influence our Babylon. We can be faithful. Faithful in a foreign world, but it requires us to be resolved to realize that no matter what pressures are pushed against us, no matter what the society says is right that we know is wrong, whatever the society says is wrong that we know that we must stand for that is right, we must be resolved and not let that resolve be broken. And we do that by trusting in God's providence that God is going to open up doors of opportunity for us. We've also got to have the faith that he is going to be with us, a faith that leads us to be obedient and to be courageous and to have discipline and to have confidence that he is going to be with us. That causes us to cultivate wisdom and understanding. And that leads us to see, as we often say, that Christianity is a marathon, not a sprint. We're in it for the long haul. God gives us this, these wonderful times of assembly, to help to recharge those spiritual batteries, to, to, to make good on that resolve. We're about to leave to go into the world for a few days until we come together again on Wednesday. God has us as Daniel and his friends out in a culture, a Babylonian culture, that we can influence for good. Tonight it may be that you have allowed the Babylons of this culture to lead you away from him in, in thought and in action and in heart. We have an opportunity to consider heaven's invitation the, the plea of, of heaven itself for us to hear his sweet call. If you've never obeyed the gospel and are ready to make the decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you'll believe in him as the Son of God and as your Savior, you're ready to make him the Lord of your life by repenting from sins and being baptized. We want to encourage you to make that decision. If you're a child of God who's been overwhelmed by the thinking and of the pressures of this culture and you need help and strength in living that life, if there's any way that we can help you through this invitation, if this is your invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?